Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga. I'm your host. And in this episode, we have a special guest. We have a junior doctor, Dr. Ted, who actually reached out to me some months ago about some of the money wins that he would like to share with the audience. So welcome, Dr. Ted. Thanks for coming on to show. Oh, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about who Dr. Ted is, and Dr. Ted is not his real name, what his view is about savings, what he does for investing, some specific career advice. Obviously, Dr. Ted is a medical doctor, and then we're going to his philosophy and view on debt. So, Dr. Ted, are you ready to get started? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get started. For those of you that are new to the show, don't forget the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. And if you have any specific questions of anything about this particular episode or any of the other episodes, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter and on Facebook. Is it okay if I just call you Ted rather than Dr. Ted each time? Just makes it easier. Yeah, of course. No, that's absolutely fine. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Ted? As far as I understand, you are a doctor. Uh, I assume a medical doctor. Yeah, that's right. I'm a, a junior doctor um, at a Victorian public health service. Um, I finished internship in January, so I'm, I'm now in my second year. Um, in terms of me, I'm in my mid-20s. Um, I'm single and I don't have any dependents, um, which puts me in a pretty good sort of financial position, I guess. Um, I live with friends in a share house. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. So you, you are really, you know, really in your prime of your junior career without any, I'm not going to say encumbrances, but without any major, major commitments. Can I ask, did you go to medical school straight after high school or did you do a graduate medical school program? Because I noticed that the graduate medical school program is becoming more and more common in Australia, whereas when I went to medical school, it was predominantly just undergrad. Yeah, so I went through um, an undergraduate program, um, and so I guess that makes me fairly young as, as far as doctors go, um, but yeah, so undergraduate. So certainly puts you at a little bit of an advantage, and for those non-medical that are listening in, essentially with a graduate medical program, and correct me, Ted, if I'm wrong, is that you've got to do about a three or four year undergrad program, then you've got to do another three or four years postgrad program, then you've got to do your internship. So you're looking at about sort of, you know, eight years or nine years before you become a resident. Whereas if you did one of the undergrad programs, depending on whether it's five or six years, you're looking at anywhere between sort of six to seven years of becoming a resident. So that, that sort of two year gap in anyone's life is, is quite significant. So that makes a big difference. And have you always wanted to be a doctor? I mean, there's a very cliche question. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, when you sort of decided that medicine was something that you wanted to do? And I guess no no regrets now that you are a doctor and 
you know, working in a very, very busy Victorian healthcare. Yeah, I am. I, I certainly enjoy my job. So I am definitely no regrets at this stage. And um, I guess it was something like medicine was something I was interested in, um, but I didn't think was realistic because I knew it was quite competitive um, to get into. So I guess throughout high school, it was something that was sort of in the back of my mind, but I was more leaning down maybe a, a science um, sort of path or, or maybe um, engineering. Um, you know, those sort of science subjects really took my fancy. I quite enjoyed biology and, and learning sort of about the human body and how it worked. Um, and then I guess um, throughout sort of the last couple of years of high school, um, I had quite a lot of exposure to the health system. So um, I, I got sick and injured myself um, and then family members as well um, had a lot, of, um, a lot of time in hospital and I guess that sort of got me that exposure to um, medicine as a profession that, yeah, sort of just made me, uh, I guess, sort of think, oh, yeah, that would be pretty interesting. And then my marks also just sort of, in, you know, gradually improved and I got the marks that I didn't think I was going to get. Um, and yeah, it made it a possibility. Yeah, look, uh, we for, for those of you that are keen on medicine as a career, I actually, just a few weeks ago, uh, we recorded an episode uh, with Jason and Matthew called Getting Into Medical School Part 1 and Getting Into Medical School Part 2. And we really go in-depth and deep dive, you know, into some of the processes involved of trying to get into medical school. Now, let's get on to the money side of things. Obviously, being a junior doctor, I've been out of the game in terms of junior doctor wages. Can you tell the audience, you know, what sort of wages can we expect as a resident year two? So the straight after internship and maybe even resident year three, because in Victoria, I assume that you are just governed by whatever the EBA is or whatever, you know, the, the base wages across the state. Uh, or is it very specific to your health service? Yeah, you're right. So it's very um, it's very broad across the state. So all um, all second year residents get paid the same. Um, at the moment, in terms of specifics, I think it's about forty three or forty four dollars an hour, um, which is quite good. And then um, on top of that, uh, you get a little bit of extra loading for weekends, for night shifts, um, and for public holidays as well. Um, and as a junior, you you do tend to work a lot of those. So I think. In terms of like a, a yearly salary, I think if you did 38-hour weeks, Monday to Friday, you did no after-hours or overtime, you'd look at somewhere around the, the $80,000 mark. Um, but I think most junior doctors would earn somewhere closer to 90 to just over 100 yeah. just because of all of the overtime and public holidays and that sort of thing as well. And look, to put that into perspective for, for someone who's in their sort of potential early to mid-20s, that's pretty good coin in 2023. So, yeah, I mean, like residents, I mean, I, I sort of sort of ballpark around that sort of ninety dollars to $100,000, depending on how many hours you do. Now, one of the, my pet peeves, and I've been very vocal about this, uh, particularly in the Victorian health system, but this is actually very common in the Australian health system, is that you guys do a lot of free work, which really pisses me off and pisses off a lot of senior doctors as well. And, you know, our colleagues, our nursing colleagues, our admin colleagues, and also people in the medical field, uh, sorry, people in the non-medical field don't actually understand that, you know, Ted, you might be rostered on for, you know, 40 hours a week, but I know for a fact that you're probably doing 50, 55 hours a week on average with a lot of free time. Has that situation, I mean, certainly that was really expected of us when I was a resident, I think reading in the media, there's a lot of class action lawsuits and things like that going on across Victorian health services and also interstate. Has that situation improved, do you think, 
you know, over the last sort of, you know, couple of years? Do you think people are just saying, you know what, I just want to be paid for the work that I do? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess personally, I don't have a lot of comparison having only worked um, for just over a year. Um, but I'd say it sounds like it, it is improving, I hope. Um, it varies greatly by health service and by rotation as well, I think. Um, so I've, I've worked in units where it's incredibly easy to claim overtime. I've worked at hospitals where if you, you know, you can, you can claim 15 minutes of overtime and, and they'll, you know, accrue it and, and pay it, um, which is fantastic. But then I've also worked in units where it's, um, where it can be a little bit of a challenge to, um, sort of, yeah, to, to claim that overtime and you do end up working, um, a fair bit of unpaid time. Mm, yeah, no, it's it's really frustrating. Now, I mean, let's say you're a, you're a resident, you know, making anywhere between ninety to one hundred thousand dollars, which equates to you know potentially after tax income of anywhere between sixty to seventy thousand dollars of after tax income. Do you have a specific savings rate? I mean, what's your personal finance budgetary principles? Low cost, living in a share house, no other expenses really. So how do you manage that? Yeah, I, I don't have a specific savings rate, um, mostly because my income does vary sort of fortnight to fortnight, depending on um, if I'm working weekends or a bit more over time. Um, so I, what I tend to do is I um, put a, a set amount of money. So I, I, I have taken a couple of your hints and I've, um, so I've automated things. So I put a, a set amount of money into an index fund each fortnight um, and the same into a savings account as well. And I just find that that's easy to sort of set and forget um, and I don't have to think about it. And that money just, yeah, goes straight into those those sort of accounts. And I, I, yeah, and it's, it's great to not have to think about it at all. Did you end up doing that as an intern as well or have you just started doing it as a resident? Yeah, so I, um, I, I definitely do that as an intern. Um, I started listening to your podcast uh, towards the end of my medical degree, which I think was a great idea because I didn't have any idea about personal finance beforehand. Um, and going from a very, like, as a, as a medical student, I was on Centrelink, I had, you know, I was just sort of scraping by. Um, and then to go to, yeah, a relatively, like, quite a, quite a good income, particularly for someone in their mid-20s with few expenses, um, I think having that knowledge about or being introduced to that knowledge about um, personal finance was really useful. So it was something that I did last year as well, yeah. Interesting. Now, uh, for the audience, uh, for the benefit of them, before this uh, recording started, I was actually talking to Ted about um, his career and where he works and, and we actually have you know mutual, I suppose, colleagues or friends from back in the day, um, someone who works uh, with Ted was actually my medical student, which is interesting. So um, uh, it's it's interesting how the medicine world is very, very small. And I often say this, and when I talk to people, you often find it's the same doctors going round and round and round. It, it's almost as if we all kind of know each other. So it's really interesting. And, 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 and if you do see that person, say hello, a big hello from Dev. Now, you, you've just you've just finished internship. Now, internship was an interesting experience for me. I, I trained at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. So, shout out to, to people from RMH. Um, that's my hometown. Any particular tips for interns that have just started, right? I mean, we're recording this in sort of late April, early May, going to be released in probably June, July. So, interns listening have just started in April, but by the time they listen, they're going to be midway through their internship. Any tips that you think would be useful because they're going to be looking to you as a resident. They're going to be going into residency the next year. Anything that you can tell them, uh, not just about money, but just about 
medicine in general? Yeah, I guess internship for everyone's a massive learning curve. I I found that a couple of things that really helped me were I tried to learn everyone's name and I found that that was so like, you know, that's not just the, the medical team, but nursing staff, allied health staff, admin staff as well. Um, and I found that that sort of that made going into work really enjoyable because you can just have a quick chat to anyone you pass by. And so, yeah, I really found that sort of social part of hospital medicine really, really enjoyable. Um, but also when you then have like a, a met call or some sort of um, potentially critical scenario on the ward, um, you know who you're working with. And I think that's really important as well. Um, so, yeah, I guess my first tip would be try and learn people's names as best you can. Uh, even if you just make a note in your phone of, of people's names and maybe a quick description if you're likely to forget. Another one would be, I think you don't need to know everything. That's certainly not an expectation of an intern. And I think on the flip side, you need to just do the basics really well. So, you know, rock up on time, listen and, and put in effort. Yeah, I just don't think you need to be the smartest person in the building. And no one's going to, like, no one talks behind someone's back about, you know, them not knowing something, but they might talk behind someone's back if someone's constantly late or not putting in the required effort. Um, so I think doing the basics really well. And then I guess just knowing when to, um, when to escalate and when to talk to someone more senior and, and get a second opinion is probably a really um, important, that's not necessarily a skill, but, but yeah, it's really important as well. Yeah, some some salient points there, and I think knowing to accept the fact that as an intern, uh, I, I personally didn't know anything. I mean, I remember the first day of internship. I think someone's magnesium was like 0.68 or something. I got a page, and the the charge nurse was, you know, we, we need to replace the magnesium. And I literally said, "What do you recommend?" <laughs> so I was just like, "I don't know," um, and she was like, "Oh, you know, 0.68's not too low, just a couple of magmen." And I was like, "Okay, sure, no worries. Whatever you say is right, right?" So um, just you know, being open and and just learning from people around you, your, your colleagues, your, your fellow interns, your residents, your registrars, and and I think I think you hit the nail on the head about the non technical skills of being a doctor, especially as an intern, and that is rocking up on time, having your lists ready, mapping out your ward rounds. And just knowing your patients, you know, what's their HB or what's their, you know, have you booked them for theatre or have you made this referral? Just knowing those sort of things. Because I think a lot of junior doctors get bogged down about the physiology, the pathology, the anatomy, the technical side of things. I want a suture, I want a plaster. Yeah, that's all fine. Hopefully you've learned all that as a medical student. But it's all the non-technical stuff that really comes in handy, your communication skills, how you relate to your patients, how you relate to your registrar. I think to all the registrars that are listening, you know, you are leading a team and part of that is, you know, showing up and becoming an example for the junior doctors like yourself and uh, and the interns. So definitely the non-technical skill, I cannot stress that enough. I think that's a really, really important point. So RMO2. Career-wise, uh, have you already made up your mind? Are you allowed to tell me what you're thinking in terms of career, what year you're doing? Are you doing a critical care year, surgical year, medicine year, general year? Yeah, um, I'm doing a general year at the moment. I certainly haven't made up my mind career-wise. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things. I've certainly enjoyed all of the rotations I've done so far um, and there's a lot of things that have taken my interest. And so I think I'll probably end up doing something relatively general, whether that be general practice or emergency medicine. Um, 
yeah, so those things are, are probably most likely, but um, yeah, we'll see. Not sure. Yep. And are you going to, uh, again, you can sort of tell me to bugger off if it's too sensitive or too specific. Have you applied for a training program or are you thinking about applying for a training program as a resident year three? Or do you think you're going to give another year of general residency and then apply for a program? Are you one of those people that are thinking early entrance into a training program or maybe spend a bit of time learning the art of medicine and then finalise your training program? Yeah, look, I, I think I'm going to do another year as a resident um, and get some, hopefully get some more exposure to a few different specialties and gain some more skills from that. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I'll apply for a training program this year, but maybe next year, we'll see. I think, again, being sort of in my early to mid-20s, it's, I, I don't feel sort of a, um, any time pressure. I think I'd rather spend a bit of time um, in the hospital, accumulating some knowledge, some skills, some experience, and then, yeah, at some point, hopefully, I'll figure out what I want to do, and yeah, we'll go from there. I think that's really important to understand for the audience. Now, if you're a graduate entry med student who's had a bit of a you know pre med career, and then going into medicine, you may even have family, you may even have children as an intern. You have to take that into account when deciding for your career. I think. You know, Ted's in a very unique situation, well, not a unique situation, but it's probably in a very ideal situation where he's got a bit of time on his hands, spent a couple of years trying before you're buying, so to speak. So I think that's an important point that that is your specific and a very, and I can't state this enough, significant advantage being a very, very young doctor in the health sector. Now, pay, we did talk a little bit about, you know, pay $90,000, $100,000 as a resident what, what's been your experience about pay slips and how it's structured? I mean, do you read them and uh, have you noticed any errors? What's been, you know, in your particular case, a response from pay office when you do catch on those errors, if any? Yeah, I, I check my pay slips every fortnight. I think it's really important to get paid um, for the work that you do. Um, the health service that I'm at has a, uh, I'm sure most health services are the same, but there's a like it's it's a pretty common theme that there's often mistakes on pay slips and it never goes in the employee's favour. Um, so I think it's yeah it's really important to make sure that you're not being underpaid. I yeah, again um, workforce can be quite delayed in their responses, but if you send that email um, and they don't reply, you can follow it up. And there's always um, ways that you can escalate it as well, whether that be with the um, AMA Vic or, you know, that's the Australian Medical Association. Um, so just so that you can follow up on those, on that pay, because yeah, you should you should get paid for the time that you work. Yeah, absolutely. I think getting paid, you know, it's it's not, I don't know, it's not rocket science, is it? Like it's, it's literally, we have software for this and I'm actually quite surprised. And, and look, you know, I'm in the Vic public health sector as well. And I'm also so surprised how many times they make pay errors. It's bizarre because like a penalty is a penalty, a shift is a shift. You just chuck it into the software, you know, the enterprise bargaining agreement, you know, parameters hopefully is all inbuilt into it and it's, you know, uh, configurable. But I'm, I'm always surprised. And if you work in a Victorian health service pay office, and you find this offensive and you want to talk to me about it, you want to come on an episode, I'm really happy to have you on board because I have not met a doctor in the Victorian Public Health Service, and I'm assuming it's the same interstate, 
where they've gone, you know what? Pay officers never made a mistake. <laughs> it's it's just so common and it's really, really frustrating. And I, and I check my pay slips because um, I'm frugal and um, mistakes worth thousands of dollars in any sort of fortnight is not uncommon. It happens quite a lot. Now, medical school advice. Now, you've got we've got thousands of medical students listening in. What would be your advice to them in terms of medical school? Was there anything that you did that maybe helped you in internship or even now as a resident? Um, I guess uh, there are a few things that probably hindered me. Um, so, I, I was a little bit um, mildly obsessive about the way I studied. I felt like I needed to I needed to write a full set of notes on every condition. I couldn't go on to other forms of study until I'd done that. Um, and I think that wasn't necessarily beneficial. I think you can you can gain that knowledge without like in a, in a much more efficient manner. Um, I think my other thing would be, and, and this is something I, I really focused on in med school and did help me was I, I tried to learn how to do the job of an intern or a junior doctor rather than the job of a consultant. And um, so in med school, you often you know, you do clinical placements with teams on the ward or in an emergency department or in a GP clinic um, and you often the consultants might try and, you know, get you to go to theatre or um, come with them to clinic and sit in their clinic room and that can be really beneficial. You can learn a lot from that but I think it's also important to try and prioritise just following around and helping out the, the interns and the junior doctors on the team because they'll they'll appreciate it and also it gives you a better idea of what they do so that your transition into internship can be a lot easier. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think you're right because as a junior doctor, I think your duties, you know, if, if, you're, a, if you're a non-doctor listening in, a junior doctor's role in a hospital is often non-clinical. There's, there's a lot of paperwork that they do. There's a lot of, they, they sort of set the scene, they... They sort of prepare for the rounds. They're assisting in theatre, which is clinical. But there's a lot of sort of non-clinical stuff that that junior doctors do that the public just don't see. They kind of see you in the ward round and they see you for the met call, hopefully if they're conscious. But absolutely important. I think I think you're right. I think spending a lot of time with consultants, which is great, you know, learning about clinical medicine is beneficial, but then you don't want to rock up to the first day of internship and not know how to do a discharge script, <laughs> which is, which, uh, which I would assume as a resident, you'd have to do a lot. I mean, it's, when I say paperwork, I assume everything's electronic medical record nowadays, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, we, um, yeah, it's, it's all electronic, yeah, particularly um, scripts. But yeah, very, like, dis- discharge scripts in particular yeah. is something I didn't really get exposure to as a medical student, but I, like, you had to sort of seek out seek out those jobs that you knew were going to be very common um, once you become an intern. Mm. And, and, you know, how do you prepare mm. for an MDT? You know, I mean, I remember at the RMH, we had to submit the PATH slides for the surgical MDT, you know, two days prior and there was a cutoff point. And if you missed a cutoff point, that would be the end of your internship. <laughs> so, sort of, and oh, that was, oh, those were the days at the RMH. Again, shout out to the RMH. Any sort of tips on, um, you know, specialty training? I mean, you mentioned that thinking about general practice or emergency, but have you thought about that and are you sort of preparing for it? Because I assume to apply for a specialty training, and it used to be the case, you need to have your core rotations and you need to do certain things in order to fulfill, to be eligible to apply for the training, right? So, you know, for example, like 
in general practice, I think I think pediatrics is one of the core rotations or core experience. So, one of the tips that I would probably say, and, and I'd be curious to hear your point, is junior doctors have to think about that uh, so that they're ready and prepared so that if you're applying for training next year, then you've got all your ducks in order. Is that something that you've thought about? Yeah, definitely. So, I've tried to seek out a paediatrics rotation this year. And the other, the other thing is that I think you can do, so you can get onto the GP program having done an emergency rotation and having seen a certain proportion of, of paediatric cases. Um, so, yes, definitely um, something I'm always sort of thinking about. And the other thing I would say from a career point of view is trying, like I've found it really beneficial to talk to consultants of the specialty specialties that I'm interested in. So particularly with emergency, um, I'll just, if I can just chew someone's ear for five minutes about what they like about their job, um, you know, what they find stressful or they don't necessarily like. And it's nice to just get some different views on that and how the role differs from being a junior as well. I think that's really important um, because you can sort of, particularly in emergency, you know, as a junior, um, you can sort of go through the day and see a certain number of patients, but then the consultant role is relatively different. They see patients, but they've also got a very managerial and sort of their, their role involves a lot of oversight as well of quite a lot of team members and, and making sure that they're aware of what's going on within the department. Um, so it's just interesting to talk to different specialists about what they like about their job and how it differs from the junior role. Yeah, absolutely vital. Yeah. At this stage, we might just take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to pick Ted's brain on debt and how he invests his money. So we'll be right back after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, we're back. We're with Dr. Ted, who I'm going to call Ted, who's a junior doctor, resident medical officer year two in the Victorian public health system. The first half of the episode, we talked a lot about who he was, some tips for junior doctors, tips on internship, tips on medical school days, and also, you know, how he goes about his saving his money. Now, what's your view, Ted, on debt? Because, you know, have you been approached by banks to lend you money, although the current interest rates are, you know, quite high. 
just what's your general philosophy on debt? Like, do you have a credit card, for example? Yeah, okay. In general, I I'm, I try to avoid it. I feel like I feel like for myself, I'd like to set up a really nice, solid financial base before I start going too much into debt. Um, I think I, I recognise that some people with the right knowledge and skills can use it to sort of fast track wealth development. But at the moment, for me, I would prefer to just have a fairly simple approach to money. And just from a sort of a stress point of view as well, I think it's really nice to not have to worry too much about debt. In terms of a couple of exceptions, yes, I I do have a credit card, um, which I pay off as soon as I make any purchase. um, So I don't incur any um, interest on that. And then the other exceptions would be um, my university debt, my hex debt, which sits at around, uh, in terms of specifics, it'd be about $50,000, which um, again is, is pretty pretty low for someone in my position. And then in the future, I'm sure I'll have a, a mortgage at some point. But yeah, at the moment, I'm trying to avoid debt for the most part. And look, by the time, and we're recording this in sort of late April, early May, by the time this airs, the hex help debt indexation would have gone up. I'm just curious, are you aggressively paying down your help debt or are you just sort of letting it ride and saving all that money and investing outside? I'm not so, I'm not really aggressively paying it down. I'd um, I'd rather sort of, it, I, I figure it'll pay itself off eventually. Um, I don't see that money in my bank account that goes towards paying it off. Um, and so, yeah, I'd prefer to invest and sort of build wealth. Um, and yeah, and and the, the hex debt will take care of itself as long as I'm working pretty much. There's something psychologically advantageous about the help debt because you're right. You don't see it physically coming out of your paycheck, although it is kind of coming out of your paycheck, but you don't feel that pain as opposed to if you had debt outside like a mortgage or like a personal loan or a car loan, that's so painful to be able to take that money and actually physically pay that off. So are you basically investing most of your savings? So, do, I mean, do you sort of have an emergency fund and then basically everything else that you save just goes straight to an investment account? Yeah, that's right. So I, as I sort of said earlier, I um, set a certain portion to go into inv- an investing account, a savings account every fortnight. And because my pay does vary, I do get a bit sort of, I often sort of accumulate within my day-to-day transaction account a bit more money. And when that builds up, I'll, um, I'll pop the extra into an investing account. I do have an emergency fund as well and I'm still continuing to build that and I just pop $100 a fortnight into that as well, which is, again, just an automated transaction. Um, and, yeah, mm. so it's yeah, it's, it's fairly simple what I do. And do you top up super or do you sort of not worry too much about it because you're so young and it's sort of 40 years down the track? Uh, it's No, so that's something I've started doing this year, um, so not something that I did last year, but I've started having a... Uh, I'm st- I've started salary sacrificing into my super just to sort of keep building that. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think this is a thing, right? I mean, as a someone in their mid twenties, it's pretty hard to see the future forty years ahead of you. But all that effort that you're putting in now to set yourself up, in your own words, you said trying to set it up for the future. You know, by the time you're 35 or even 45 years old, in another sort of 10 to 20 years time. You may not need to save or invest any money because you've done all the hard work and then that just keeps building and building and building and compounding and, you know, 
basically you kind of reach kind of financial independence very early on and then you can really focus on your career or family or children if you choose to have any children. So I think that's a very, very amazing feat that you've done. But it's very boring. Like has anyone told you, hey, Ted, come on, like you're in your mid-20s, dynamic, junior doctor, makes good coin, but what you're doing sounds really boring. What's your response to that? Oh, it's so boring. But it, like that's that's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, I guess uh, I haven't really had too many people um, like tell me to um, spend more money or anything. I think a lot of my friends are quite sort of similar. Yeah, which which is really good. I have a general philosophy of just trying to make the most out of whatever I have and just try to get the most out of it. So, for instance, I'd been looking to buy a, a new mountain bike for a while, um, but I had an old mountain bike. And so I really sort of rode that into the ground a bit before buying a new one. And I still, I, I've still got my first car, which I've now had for well, going on seven years, um, which is a little absolute lemon, but it, it goes and it works and cars are expensive, particularly at the moment. So, um, you know, rather than going and buying a, a flash fancy car, which I, you know, I could possibly do, it's, I'd rather put that money aside so that I can build, yeah, as I sort of said, set that base and build a, a nice financial foundation. Um, because I think my, my long-term goals financially to be, um, financially independent by sort of mid forties to 50, I think that would be fantastic. And then also I'd really like to, when I have a family, just have that flexibility and be able to work part-time so that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's something that's really important to me. So those are the big goals and that's what yeah. I'm trying to set myself up for. And so not splurging on unnecessary expenses um, sits mm. really well with me. So Well said. I mean, I'm sure you've seen consultants in your hospital and certainly I did when I was a junior doctor just slaving away, you know, late at night, you know, operating or being on call and you sort of wonder, are they doing it because, you know, they're under some sort of financial pressure or they haven't thought about their finances maybe 20, 30 years prior to that or they're really doing it because they love medicine so much. I mean, personally, I couldn't think of anything worse than um, being on call in my sort of, you know, 50s or 60s when I get there. But, you know, each to their own. I mean, obviously, that all depends on your personal financial journey and how you set your finances up. And, you know, some people just love being on call every single day. You mentioned about a lemon of a car. Now, we, we had a doctor on, Dr. Nick, shout out. He was a guest a few months ago who drives a Haval. And I was actually very surprised. Haval is, I think, is a made in China brand. I mean, I've seen their cars. It actually looks really nice, but it's a very cheap, effective, efficient vehicle. And they're a net worth millionaire. They're actually a net worth multimillionaire. So, and I was actually quite shocked that they drove a very, very average car, this sort of silent wealth building strategy. Can I ask what car you drive? Yeah, I I might not go into too much specifics because it's it's uh, like anyone who knows me probably knows. European brand or Aussie uh, brand? European brand. And it's from the very early 2000s. So, it's, yeah, sure. it's looking at being about 20 years old. Sure. So old, old European brand. So, you know, junior doctor making between 80 and 100 quid, 1,000 quid a year, not necessarily going out, you know, and leasing a car or buying a car, which is surprisingly common. I mean, I, 
again, these are all cliche things, but it's real and it's true and it happens a lot. So glad to see that you haven't fallen to that trap of buying an expensive car. And when I say an expensive car, for someone on $100,000, I'd say 50000 is expensive. You know, that's a really expensive car. So um, it, it's glad that you haven't gone into that trap. Now, your investing philosophy, is it mainly just passive sort of ETFs or do you have something on the side, actively managed funds or what's your philosophy there of investing? Yeah, I'm very much um, on the passive bandwagon. and I just, I just, it's something that I don't have the knowledge, uh, I guess, to actively invest. Um, and I think, yeah, I'd just rather set and forget, automate it all, let it all sort of go to work in the background. Um, and that makes it really easy for me, stress-free. Yeah. So, yeah, very much into passive investing. And then do you then sort of cash out the dividends and then reinvest it yourself and, you know, try and distribute it? Or do you just tell them, actually, just reinvest it for me? Yeah, I just, I've just got a dividend reinvestment plan and it's just reinvested um, whenever I get dividends. And again, something that I, I don't see, I don't worry about and just happens in the back. Not to get too political here, I mean, it's likely that when you retire or when you reach that financial independence, you're very well going to be affected by that $3 million super cap. I don't know if you've heard of that in the media. There's there's a fair bit of noise about it, um, certainly a couple of months ago, where potentially, you know, once after $3 million, you're going to be paying 30% tax on anything above that. Is that something that worries you? Are you sort of restricting your wealth building strategy because of proposed future legislative changes, whether it be super or non-super? Uh, I'm not I'm not too concerned about that. Um, I guess uh, I think if I managed to get $3 million in super, I, I wouldn't be, I, I don't think I'd worry too much, much about slight tax, like sl- paying slightly more tax. Um, it's just not a, a major concern for me. I think I'd be in such a, a good financial position if, I, if that was my financial position that um, it wouldn't it wouldn't bother me too much. And I guess I sort of see super as a way for the government to encourage people to save and um, avoid relying on the aged pension. And so if you if you start to have more than $3 million in super, I think that's well and truly done its job. Mm. So, yeah, I mm. guess that's where I, I sit on that. Surprisingly, I've had you know quite a lot of registrars and junior doctors worried about it and, and contact me about it and, you know, ask me, and I'm not a financial advisor, but they sort of say, you know, why should I maximize super? Because, you know, potentially it's going to be taken away from me. And I think I think you're right. I think, you know, we've got to have some perspective here is that um, we don't know what the future holds. It can, you know, things can change. And, you know, it's not as if that your investments outside of super are free from legislative risk anyway, because, you know, they can just raise the tax rates, um, you know, to try and um, get rid of the debt and deficit. So it's really tricky to sort of plan for those sort of random things and and really important not to get, you know, too worried about the noise, you know, just stick to the plan and just execute it. So money wins. I mean, is there things that you do in your life in terms of bills or savings that perhaps all of us can take home as a message in terms of what we can implement that you've done? Can you tell us or share some of your money wins that perhaps our audience might be interested in? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I've I've got a few. Um, I'm in yeah, as I've mentioned, I'm in a pretty pretty good situation in that I split rent and bills with a couple of housemates, which is fantastic, and that's a great way to um, sort of reduce expenses. Uh, I think 
big one for me is I'm someone who finds habits really hard to break. And so if I set up really good habits early, um, I, I just tend to go with them. And so, so for instance, from an early age, my parents always uh, prioritize exercising and uh, eating really healthily. And now if I, if I don't go for a run for a couple of days, I sort of get that, that itch and that sort of urge to, to go and do something and, and get the heart rate up. So I think in a similar way, I've set up some really good habits over the last year. And I think that uh, it's it's going to be really hard for me to break those habits. So, yeah, I think that's a, a real win for me. I guess another one, I, I, like I'm frugal to an extent because I think that's been ingrained in me from just having a, a low income throughout high school and throughout um, university. I was just doing sort of, you know, occasional casual jobs um, and that sort of meant that I sort of just valued picking things up relatively cheaply. Um, so, for instance, um, like I was I was looking for a desk a few weeks ago. I went to the office works. I was in the car park and then I realized, oh, I haven't checked Facebook Marketplace. And I checked Facebook Marketplace and then within 10 minutes, I'd agreed to pick up a desk for free from someone and it's fantastic. It does the job. I'm using it right now and I didn't, I didn't go and spend 100 bucks on a desk. Yeah, and then I guess the, the other thing is just increasing my knowledge is a bit of a, a money win. So listening to this podcast, um, reading some of the books like The Barefoot Investor and that sort of thing, um, and then looking at some sort of money calculators online as well, I think has been really beneficial. So um, Money Smart has a compound interest calculator, which I tend to use to project into the future a rough estimate of what my current uh, habits are going to what sort of financial situation my current habits are going to get me into. And I've also used those to, um, so my brother, for instance, I showed him the Money Smart um, compound interest calculator and that made him start investing straight away. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. So I think um, just using a few of those things has sort of given me a bit of a bit of an idea of what the future might look like as well, which has been really good. I think that's really important. I mean, I was speaking to a GP registrar just the other day and, and I often ask this question to everyone. I say, how much money do you think you'll need to retire on? And 99% of them don't know. They're like, I don't know. And I think you need to create a pathway and know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, you know, using the analogy of a destination, if you don't really have a destination, you're sort of just wandering around in space and you can really go off track. And I think that's what I told the GP registrar. I said, you need to work out how much money you need to retire on and work backwards. And having a set goal and writing it down and being intentional with it is really, really important. Just out of interest in terms of your income, and again, you can share or not share, how aggressive are you and how much opportunity is there to work extra and cover shifts within your network? Because I assume as a resident year two, there's not much locum opportunities because a lot of the locum opportunities, you need to be a little bit senior, resident year three and above. But I assume there's a lot of casual shifts, gap shifts that you can put your hand up for. Do you do a lot of that to increase your income as a resident? Yeah, great question. Um, I guess I, I've i started doing that a little bit more this year. Last year, I, uh, I was more focused on uh, I, I found the transition to full-time work quite tiring. So having my days off was really important to me. Mm. This year, there's been quite a lot, quite a few more locum shifts advertised. I think uh, my health service is relatively understaffed. 
And so there's always shifts to pick up. In fact, the shift I'm doing tonight um, is a shift that I've, I've picked up as a locum shift. Having, having that experience, like I'm now past internship, I can pick up shifts that, you know, I, I, I worked that job last year. Um, and so I know what's involved. It's really, it's really comfortable. It's really easy. Um, and so to earn sort of two and a half times my normal rate, picking up an extra shift for something that I'm comfortable doing is, yeah, it's something that I'm looking to do a little bit more this year. So do they, I mean, when I was a, when I was a resident, they used to send texts out, uh, sort of mass texts out and you just sort of ring medical workforce. Is that the sort of the similar sort of principles they use? I mean, how do you pick up extra shifts? How do you even know there's extra shifts? Yeah, they, they literally just send a, an email out relatively frequently. I think it's about weekly um, and they, they send texts out as well. Um, and I usually just reply by email or by text and say, you know, I'd be happy to pick up this shift if it's still available. And yeah, most of the time, yeah, it is, it is still available and it's um, pretty easy to pick up. Right. And, and those rates that you talked about, I assume they are, you know, casual rates dedicated for those shifts. So, for example, if you're on $40 an hour, you know, they may pay more than that and it's a specific rate. It's not at your overtime rates. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it's a um, it's a specific rate. I think what our uh, health service uses is a hundred and so for residents, it's one hundred and ten dollars an hour um, for a locum day shift and one hundred and thirty dollars an hour for a locum night shift. That's that's quite significant as a resident year two. Yeah, absolutely. So I've um, not to go into specifics, but I've picked up a um, a locum night shift for tonight, and so that's one hundred and thirty dollars an hour for. Uh, oh, I think it's about 11 hours, um, which yeah ends up being yeah. close to you know 1.5k, which is yeah, a fantastic, yeah. a fantastic effort for a night. Which is which is great. Sure, it's nights. It's not the best lifestyle in the world, and and sure you've got to stay up all night, and which kind of you kind of lose your day tomorrow. But presumably, is that because you've got a few days off in your roster cycle, and that's why you're sort of doing a locum shift. Yeah, it's because I've so I've actually got a run of nights um, starting tomorrow night, um, and I figured if I'm going to change my sleep cycle for those three or four nights, I might as well do it and pick up an extra shift and just do it one night earlier. Ah, um, okay, yeah, right. So that's I, actually yeah. that's actually pretty 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 good because uh, you know I, I sort of talk about income per unit time. I mean, essentially, you're getting paid three times the income of what you'd normally get paid. Uh, is that something that a lot of residents that you know of are also doing to try and, you know, fill these roster gaps because essentially, you know, you can earn three days wages in one night shift. Yeah, yeah, no, quite a few people are on the lookout, but also um, a lot of people also value their their time off and I know, yeah, I do as well. So, I'm not going to do it um, every time I get a couple of days off, but, you know, occasionally if it, if it works for me, particularly if I've got a run of three or four nights and, um, you know, I can work an extra night shift beforehand. I think that's a, a pretty good use of my time. I, I used to do I used to do a lot of casual shifts when I was a resident, and I used exactly the same philosophy. So if I would I would plan a holiday, and let's say the holiday you know back then would cost X amount of dollars, you know, a few shifts here or there over the year adds up. An extra sort of you know ten shifts would be an extra fifteen thousand dollars. Well, that's your holiday that you've just paid for. Uh, and of course, when you go on holiday, you still get paid because you get the annual leave, which you're entitled to as an employee. And it's, it's those sort of opportunity costs and trying to minimize those as much as possible and really maximizing your income per unit time. Um, I'd certainly leverage that as a resident um, uh, 
at the RMH, uh, no shame in saying this, as a resident year two at the time, I was I was the highest paid uh, resident that they'd ever had. I doubt that record is broken. I could be wrong. If it is broken, let me know. But well, in, well into the six figures back then, uh, which is uh, which is you know ten odd years ago. So yeah, that's really good. I think that's really good that your network and hopefully other networks provide you with the opportunity. Um, now I am a manager, uh, and I feel that as a manager, I would much rather have someone like yourself who knows the network, who's already employed, who knows the systems rather than have a locum because a locum comes from outside the network and for that shift, they've got to learn everything uh, and every network is slightly different. So I would often offer shifts to internal locums or casuals uh, or people that want to do extra work because from a fiscal point of view, from an income point of view, from an expense point of view, it's much easier to deal with. You know, I don't have to deal with the agency. I don't have to pay the agency rates and all that sort of stuff. It's really good that your network actually utilizes that. And I'm really happy to note that a lot of the residents at your network look out for such opportunities because, yeah, you value free time. But, you know, sometimes you're sitting at home doing nothing. So why not make some quid? You know, we've got the year of thousands of people listening in. And was there any sort of things that you'd like to share that really catapulted you from a money perspective, from a career perspective or anything that they can use uh, in addition to those other tips that you've already mentioned? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I guess I, I think I'd just like to hammer home the, like for, for me and, and hopefully for other people, setting up good habits and automating things and just having that sort of basic knowledge of personal finance, I, I feel has set me up really well as a good base. Um, and yes, I, I think I'd just stress setting up good habits, automating, um, investing and yeah, just watching it build. Yeah. And, and like I said, you've, you've, you've done really well from a career perspective, but also you've shown that um, simplicity and being boring, although is you know, not as sexy or exciting, but um, it really does build up the foundations. And hopefully- you know, in 10 years' time, uh, if I'm still podcasting, and I hope I am, I'll get you back on the show and maybe you can share with us, okay, well, has that worked? And in my experience, whenever I've spoken to people who have built millions of dollars in net worth, I always asked them how they did it. Like, was there any secret source? And no one's ever told me that they've built it with frequent fly miles or churning credit cards or leveraging up to the hilt, 90% of the time, it's very simple, very boring, foundational stuff, intentional stuff, which is, you know, that's the evidence. The evidence is keep it really simple and just pay yourself first, like what you're doing and and just invest early. And I'm really glad that you really got onto the podcast towards the end of your medical school years. And hopefully, you know, you're on your way to many millions of dollars. And again, it's not about the money. It's about your flexibility, like what you were saying, that at the age of 45 or 50, you don't need to do night shifts if you don't want to. You don't need to do weekends if you don't want to. Uh, It gives you that option, gives you that power, gives you that choice, and I think that's what it's all about. Now, I think think you need to get on your way to that night shift because – because if you don't go, I mean, that, that coin, I'll take it. Um, so I really appreciate your time coming on the show, Ted. I really appreciate it. I know, obviously, 
you're going to have to stay up all night and we are recording this sort of later in the evening and you've got to go to a shift so I won't hold you up too long. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, thanks thanks for having me, Dev, and um, thanks again for creating a podcast that I feel has set me, helped to set me up really well. So, yeah, thanks very much. No worries, and you have a good shift. Now, that's it we have time for today with Dr. Ted. Uh, phenomenal interview and just keeping it very simple. The take-home messages, start investing early, keep it simple, pay yourself first, and the rest kind of kind of just works its way out. And all all those junior doctors, all those medical students, the non-technical skills, really important. Showing up on time, making sure you're organized, making sure you're responsive to your pages, making sure you communicate clearly. You know, none of that kind of gets taught in medical school. A lot of it you kind of learn on the job as an intern, and that's really, really important. So some sage advice from Dr. Ted. Now, that's all we have time for. Now, don't forget to leave a five-star rating and a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcasting platform you may be using, or maybe just leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better. Uh, And please leave a positive review because that really helps people find these episodes. And I do put in a lot of thought and effort into recording these episodes. And until next time, my name's Dev Rago. This is My Millennium Money Professional. Please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.